Welcome to the second episode of our second season of African Women Rock. And today we are speaking to another human rights defender, democracy protector, superwoman in the space. Her name is Mary Baij de Silva. She is a lawyer from Swaziland, a small country bordered and surrounded by South Africa and Mozambique in Southern Africa. And I have known Mary for over 10 years now. I met her through democracy protests, well, pro-democracy protests um, against the king of Swaziland. Swaziland is a country of about 1.2 million people and is ruled by an absolutist monarch. And since 1973 has been under a decree that prevents democracy and limits human rights across the board. Uh, Mary is a lawyer and she's going to tell us and take us through the journey, how she got into the space, what she seeks to achieve and um, what kind of support she gets from institutions like the African Union. So Mary, we're going to get into it. You recently won a SHIELD Award for your contribution to the fight for freedom, democracy, and human rights in Swaziland and beyond. What is this about and what does it mean to you? Thanks, Nombeche. The SHIELD Award is um, an award that is a of the work that they do, um, work that they do, of course, under difficult circumstances, um, under risky environments, and, of course, under a threat of attack. Uh, um, to say that their work is validated basically by their the colleagues. Um, and this is the highest honor for me that I can think of because this is an award that is given by my own peers. You know, there is no panel of academics or, you know, that sit around and determine the criteria and determine the winner. So these are my colleagues in the human rights space that, you know, felt that I deserved the award this year. But the shift Award generally is held awards for the five regions, which is Central Africa, West Africa, East Africa, North Africa, and Southern Africa. And then the overall African award for the, the, the humorous defender that has done extremely well uh, continentally. But this year, there were no regional awards. Um, there was just the overall award, which I then um, was given at, um, you know, Bishoftu in, in, in Ethiopia in February, um, given, of course, by African defenders on behalf of all human rights defenders in Africa. Congratulations. You're so deserving of this, Mary. Mary, you are a lawyer by profession, and um, <clears throat> can you please share your journey and why it is you chose to go into um human rights law 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 and um tell us about your journey how you got into the space and um how you are feeling at this time um you don't choose to go into human rights law um i think it's something that happens along the way um you just uh, develop a passion for human rights and you just move into that space um, human rights law is not an aspect of the law that is highly rewarding. Rather, it comes with um, too many risks. But I would say that 
after um you know I, I i began my journey like any other lawyer out there i went to university got the qualifications i passed the bar exam got admitted to the high court of swaziland and was practicing generally you know either whether it was civil or criminal law or labor law i was just basically practicing everything but um then i i began working on uh, women and, and children's rights and i i began passion became passionate about it because women and children are the most vulnerable in society and um they are most underrepresented underrepresented in terms of legal representation because they do not have resources to hire a lawyer and so on and so forth i did quite a number of divorces and mainly most of them were cases of abuse women trying to get away from toxic relationships abusive relationships um <clears throat> doing um uh children's uh, maintenance and so on and so forth so within this aspect i began looking at you know other look i began looking across the spectrum of human rights i began looking at the spectrum of freedom of expression because women generally um you know oppressed in terms of expressing themselves they find it difficult but even speaking to another woman about the problems that they are facing because they have been you know muzzled for a very long time and children likewise so i began looking at um freedom of expression freedom of association um you know even within the law your marital status is looked at when you are approaching the courts um not only marital status but how you were married whether in terms of swaz law and custom or in terms of um civil law because then that talks to uh, you know how you even approach the court but when i looked at freedom of expression i got involved with you know basically the youth movement because that that's where i was strongest um coming from um a faith based organization and well long story short i began um talking to civil and political rights specifically freedom of expression association and assembly but then of course this led me into the struggle for democracy because it was um pro democracy activists and human rights defenders that were being violated in terms of civil and political rights they were denied the right to freely associate we know political parties are banned um some organizations are proscribed in in, in our country so you know going into that space and of course we've got other professionals in 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 Swaziland in the legal profession who are also doing some of this work and I was beginning to engage more with them and yeah that's how I I came into into the space um but the unfortunate part is that when I came into the space I then became a victim of what I was trying to ask assist with i was trying to assist comrades in the civil and political political rights spaces in 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 protecting their rights in making sure that they are not violated in 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 getting us them assisted when they've been arrested and so on and so forth but then now i came under fire i became a target as well i became, i i started getting arrested as well together with my comrades needing my colleagues now to come to my assistance and i think in the push for democracy you know um that that that's how i came into into the struggle for democracy in in the country um and i think most of it was mostly about curiosity wanting to know more and the more you know the more you want to change things well congratulations i don't think i i spoke to you since you got this recognition wow mary i mean you are treading in a 
what sounds like a very dangerous space. I mean, I've been in that space. I've seen what has happened to many uh, people in in the in the struggle for democracy in Swaziland, and I think it's gotten quite violent in recent years. What's your take on that? What is the cause of the increased violence? How what has changed? When I was in the struggle, uh, I was really active in the Swaziland struggle around 2012, 2011, 2013. Um, we could hardly get the Swazi population involved in a march people were not trying to stand against the king and fast forward to 2021 uh things took a turn and it became very violent what do you attribute this to and what was your role what were you busy with at that time um this i attribute this to the awakening of the swazi nation um because I'll, I'll, I'll make an analogy. When you plant a seed, when you're planting a tree, you plant a seed first, and it takes years and years of watering and nurturing that seed for it to grow into a fully grown tree that begins bearing fruit. And I think that um, that's what has happened in the country. You know, uh, you've got political organizations and political parties that have been conducting and civil society organizations, by the way, that have been conducting civic education and running political programs within which they have been educating the populace around their civil and political rights and tying the socioeconomic conditions of the people to these, um, you know, to, to, the, to the, the political space, to the political, um, the issues of governance. And for a very long time, people have been listening and assimilating this. But I think, you know, a COVID, you know, brought across the stark reality of the people to say, we are moving from bad to worse. And in this situation, um, through social media as well, people were being, um, you know, they were, they were awakened to the lavish lifestyle of the royal family. So within the aspects of poverty and high unemployment on all the other social ills, you've got a royal family that is living so luxuriously, they're actually flashing this on, on Facebook, I mean, on social media. And, you know, the people began getting disgruntled and they be, began, you know, taking notice of things and civil society organizations had been saying. And finally, people drew the link between governance and social problems, the social economic problems they were facing. So finally, the people were realized that if they don't rise up and speak, I don't know what comes after worse, but worse than what they were, you know, experiencing at that point in time. So this has been a lot of slog work from people over decades. You know, you are talking about an era between 2010 and 2013. And I think it, sometimes we get despondent, thinking that the people are not listening, the people don't care. But as things progress, you know, it takes time for people to accept that there has to be change and, and that they are the only ones that can bring about that change in the, you know, in the civil and political space. But in different aspects, you know, there's so many, that, you know, in the human rights space, there's a huge spectrum. So I've been working on the independence of the judiciary and independence of lawyers. I've been working on um, issues of civil and political rights from the diplomatic arena now, not just on the ground as an activist, you know, um, talking to the laws and the policies that bring about these problems that we're facing. So I've been involved 
in the struggle, but from a different sector. Um, I made mention earlier that I began being a target. So I was not being able to assist um, you know, comrades who have, had been arrested because I was getting arrested along with them. So we took a decision that says, no, I need to leave the space of activism and go into the space where I am a professional to be able to assist comrades. And I think further, you know, the the struggle from a different perspective, using African and international mechanisms, using my technical knowledge to to push the struggle further. Ah, I agree. I, I I love your response, Mary, because I think the reason why I then uh, took a step back was that I realized that it has to be an an organic struggle from within Swaziland, and uh, those of us who are outside of Swaziland cannot push a, a revolution for them. But I mean, how do you feel with how it, it escalated and became violence? And I see now though that. It got violent, really violent, and then now it's cooled down again. What is happening? What is the state of the struggle right now? It became extremely violent because for the first time, the, you know, the state was shocked. It, uh, the state went into panic mode. And when anybody goes into panic mode, they don't reason properly. And so in, 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 in that instance, they unleashed the army, which we all know the army is not trained uh, in civic uh, engagement. They are trained to shoot, to kill. And that's the only way that they can respond. So in the context where the army was now then unleashed on the people, there was, uh, you know, a, a unprecedented killing of civilians, injuring of civilians. There was widespread arrests and people not being allowed legal representation. And within this context, this is a government that is in panic mode, that does not know what to do, because even in their stronghold, which is the uh, rural communities, people were protesting. And, you know, they thought that at least within rural communities, they had, you know, a hold over, they could control the rural populace. And we, we saw that violence um, in, in June 2021. We saw it again in October. We saw it again uh, in November. And then, you know, because we do not want to pe- pe- put people's lives on the line, a decision was taken to, by the leadership that says, there has been a directive that says no more protests. Do we continue to defy or do we protect the lives of people? So a decision was taken to protect the lives of the people. This was taken by the leadership of the mass democratic movement to say we cannot be careless uh, when, when we, and, and reckless when we do these things. But the struggle is continuing. You know, the protests are continuing in a different format. In as much as we know they do not uh, take the petition seriously with or statements that we issue seriously, but there are other people that are listening to us, not just the state. You know, you've got Sadek, in as much as many people can argue that Sadek is useless, but Sadek, for the first time in a very long time, has been issuing strong statements against Swaziland. You've got institutions like Africa. Union, you've got institutions like the African Commission on, hum, uh, uh, on Human and People's Rights also speaking to the issue. And, and, you know, so with the killing, the assassination of Tulani, who was the leader of the mass democratic movement under the multi-stakeholder forum, 
you know, uh, people say um, things die down. We are saying we are using silent di diplomacy to protect the leaders and we are protecting the people, but the work is being done. You know, when uh, you've got issues like, um, you know, Resolution 174 from the United States Senate, that is not by coincidence. That is because there are people working in the background. You've got an EU resolution from the EU Parliament. It's not because people are not working. The people are there doing the background work, but we've realized that facing them head on without um, the necessary tools is not assisting us. So let us use other diplomatic methods of pushing them to where we want them to go. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, your colleague, Tulani Matsego. I just wanted to, to be clear that Tulani is actually a lawyer. He wasn't a politician, right? And that it sent shockwaves for such a peaceful, peace-loving man um, who's a lawyer and still practice, was still practicing law um, and was brutally murdered as for participating in the mass democratic movement. Is that so? Yes. Tulani was a lawyer still practicing. I'm no longer practicing, but one of the few still practicing. And one of the... Um, Central members of the legal response team, you know, that was now responding to the arrests of people who are being denied the, um, the, the, the right to legal representation during the unrest. And um, not only was he part of that legal response team, he was the chairperson of the Multi-Stakeholder Forum, which is a coalition of, um, you know, uh, the mass democratic movement as represented by Labour youth, women, LGBTI community, the church, um, you know, and political parties. And um, part of this also was pushing for national dialogue and, and, and you know, a peaceful transformation into a democratic state. Tulani was a very influential, um, you know, uh, person. He had, um, you know, the, the high profile and visibility and the dignity in, and integrity to lead the mass democratic movement. He was a unifying factor, you know, bringing together different organizations with divergent views and, and, and opinions and, and, you know, ideologies was a huge task to the state because when he spoke, everybody paused to listen. You had the professionals listen, listening to him because he was a professional. You had the activists listening to him because he was an activist. Human rights defenders were listening. Even government itself was listening regionally and internationally. And we were using him as the chairperson to rally together, you know, regional and international support for the Swazi struggle. So this then placed a target on him for the, by, by, to the, you know, by the state. Um, we know Tulani has, was arrested The difference because when he came out of prison, he came out stronger. He came out guns blazing, you know. He didn't quieten down. He didn't uh, conform to what they thought they were doing. They thought he, they were breaking his spirit and yet they were making him stronger. So the only option now came out, they did. Yeah, um, yeah I was saddened by that. And you were not deterred or became afraid for your own life after hearing or experiencing Tulani being murdered for the work that he was doing? Look, it's only natural for anyone. Um, to become afraid. Only somebody somebody that's foolish wouldn't realize the risk and and you know the 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 hostile environment that they're work, working in. Um I've been working with Tulani for a 
you know, over the years for a very long time, you know, in the human rights um, arena, we've been working together, um, you know, advocacy and, and so on and so forth. And even within the MSF now, I was part of the secretariat and I was working very close to him. Um, I became almost the number two in the organization up until we went to the elective conference. So naturally you're going to think, Who's next? Because we knew that we know that there's a list that had been prepared, even if government can come out and deny it. They are the security company they hired, they contracted, basically is telling the whole world that there is a list. And we know that many of us are on that list, even if we can't say for sure. You know, in Swaziland, when we speak about things and we say it's an open secret, it's because we know it's there, but we cannot prove it. So naturally, you know, um, when they killed Tulani, um, all of us were, were just shocked that they actually had the audacity to do that, you know, to go after somebody who was so peace-loving and who only preached peaceful resolution to the problems that we're, we're having. Um, but within that fear, then you, you, you think to yourself, okay, if we all give into the fear, what happens? Does the struggle die with Tulani? Or do we move forward and push the agenda that he was pushing? And, and I think I'm at that stage that says, look, I've been in this game for a very long time now. Um, and it's not me making the choice to be in the struggle. I think the struggle has chosen me to be there. Um, so it's it's pushing forward, you know. You 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 can't give in to fear, you can't give in to to something that will paralyze you for a moment. You have to face that fear and just continue with the work that you're doing. Yeah. Mary, maybe for someone who doesn't understand why Swaziland wants democracy, can you try and explain why what is the status of um an old woman living or not an old woman, just a woman like in her thirties living in Swaziland uh, how is she not able to live her life? Why Why must she support democracy, for example? And why must the world support her in exerting pressure for democratization in Swaziland? Um, for, for, I'll try to put this in a nutshell that says, democracy is all about equality, human dignity, um, the promotion and protection of human rights and the respect for the rule of law. When I talk about equality, I'm talking about uh, non-discrimination at any level, either by sex, by age, any classification, by um, gender or anything like that. And in a country like Swaziland, you know, where culturally a woman is seen as a minor, regardless of how old she is, it is important for us to make sure that we're fighting for this equality to, to ensure that women have the equal opportunities as men do, you know, equal access to the services that men have, equal access to information, equal access to participation in, in the politics of the country, equal access basically to everything. When it comes to human rights, women's rights are trampled on on a daily basis, um, based on culture, again, mainly. And um, Cases of sexual and gender-based violence are on the rise. And this is simply because women are not seen as equal partners to men in society. When we talk about yes. the respect for the minors. rule of law, hi. I'm saying they're still seen as minors. What does that mean? It means that even if you are a woman of um, above the age of 21, which is the age of adulthood basically in the country, 
country. You, when 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 it comes to being um, viewed on the same level as men, you can never be on the same level as men. Basically, a minority status means that you are a child in perpetuity. You are a child forever when you are, you know, when you are being compared to a man. So we know how children are not taken seriously in society, even in our own families. While we may speak about children's rights, we abuse our children's rights in one way or another. We don't have to violate them physically or anything like that, but we always uh, tram- trample on, ch- on our children's rights. So if a woman, an adult woman is treated like a child, you know, her views, her opinions are not taken into account. And therefore she cannot speak, you know, to self-determination to how she wants to live her life. While some, in some uh, aspects of society, this has changed a little bit. But when it comes to the crunch, you know, when it comes to issues of serious um, legal um, ramifications, a woman's right is not as equal as that of a man. And that is what we mean when we're talking about women being seen as minors in society. And wow, again, that it yeah. changed. It, it has changed to, an, to a certain extent. But when it comes to the crunch, you know, the issues of culture and tradition and religion come into play. A woman is always seen as subservient and she must sub- submit to the man. Initially, you would think that this would only happen in a marriage. But there are some instances where a woman's literally told you are up against the man. You have to bow down and make way for the man. So in application, you know, it, it, it depends on the, the different contexts, but it is still there. It is still a part of our lives. Yeah, still a dominant way of of, of being. Um, yeah, let's expand further to to yes. how the lived experience of a Swazi is in a non democratic country. So there's no freedom of speech, right? Yes, absolutely no freedom of expression because I'll I'll term term it as freedom of expression because. Um, it, it also goes towards the media as well. So this is not just about individual rights. It's also about collective rights. Um, when you speak against the government, when you speak about politics, pure politics, when you speak about democratic um, change in the country, you are seen to be an enemy of the state. And and um, I don't remember which African leader, I, I think maybe it was Idi Amin or something, was it, I can guarantee you freedom of, of expression, of speech but I cannot guarantee you freedom after. And this is exactly what happens in our country, in a situation where we are muzzled as individuals, where the media is highly censored and um, where there are laws, you know, that make it easy for the licensing authority, which is the government, to shut down media houses. So if media cannot speak on behalf of the people that are muzzled, then who then speaks on behalf of the people? So the freedom of expression goes also to access to information. There's information that you want to get from government or there's information that you want to get that should be public, but is not uh, made accessible to people. You know, so there's just this whole thing around freedom of expression and access to information in our country that while people may enjoy it in other democratic countries, you know, it brings across the stark reality that we are not in a democratic country. We are an absolute monarchy where the, the decisions and the whims of one individual would dictate the rest of our lives. 
the, and that goes all the way down to you know up let's say up to the economy as well government uh gets a budget and they spend it whichever way the people are not able to hold them accountable right absolutely absolutely um there's no transparency in our government um and there's no accountability by leaders to the people because you know the process under which they are appointed into those leadership positions is very flawed they are not accountable to the people because they make an oath to the king and his heirs or something like that so even if we can call out government to account to them it's just like blowing hot air into their face because they couldn't kill us um for issues they are not even accountable to parliament the so so-called institution that should be playing an a supervisory role over government they're not accountable to them they refuse to be held accountable by by parliament and parliament being supposedly the the institution that is put in place by the people to watch for the interest of the people so if parliament cannot play their oversight role to account yeah um so there's you know this goes on to now i think i've seen increasingly over the years how the king has become more involved in the economy squeezing out normal swazis in the economy participating on participating in the economy and he basically is owning as much land and as much economic activity as possible and i think this is a factor that's led to people seeing that things are not okay and that they need to speak up mary yes yes um so when we talk when when the king said everything in the country belongs to him he meant literally that he controls he has taken over uh, uh, public institutions that were set up to um you know to benefit the public he's taken them and and made them into private institutions for the royal family and i'm speaking about dibio and tisuga he has um evicted people forcefully from their land and declared that land which was previously swazi nation land declared that as farmland belonging to government um they have you know um in these evictions you find that it's land that is rich for agricultural purposes so they take they that's how they took over the sugar industry in the country um the because that's the biggest industry for us in terms of agriculture um he's he has huge farms where he is rearing cattle for for beef exports and so on and so forth so this we are unable to access most of this information because it is closed off we are not allowed to access that information we know it, it is happening but when everybody when institutions ask us for proof that is where we fail you know because we cannot we cannot access this kind of information and i think um for the first time in a very long time there are some people who are be, who are beginning to dig deep and 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 there are some people that are also disgruntled within um a government within the system that are providing critical information around other aspects but you know when when we talk about control of the land that is is the way he controls us the most because people are living on Swazi nation land 
that is held supposedly in trust by the king. And I say supposedly because he can, they can take it away at any time. As I've mentioned, there have been forced evictions. This land is administered by the chiefs who also are now so corrupt that they can actually evict a person for their own capitalistic interest. And, you know, when, when you control the land, you basically control the life of the people because most of our people are unemployed and they live off the land if they are able to do that. And once you deprive them of the right to a livelihood, then you are creating a citizenry of abject poverty. So apart from the political power and political monopoly that he has in terms of governance, he also has that monopoly now in terms of the economic life of the, the people. He has, um, you know, muscled out small business people and taken over their businesses um, or if he's not able to take over their businesses, he uses institutions like the Revenue Authority to shut down those businesses by, uh, you know, giving them heavy taxes that, you know, a small business can, of course, not afford. And so when the business close, closes down, they come in, they swoop in. And the king may not do it directly because people want to see direct evidence that that is happening. He does it through proxies. And most of the time, even if he is not involved directly in those issues, you have he, the royal family also taking advantage of the situation. His children doing the very same thing that he does. Um, his wives, you know, through proxies again, the queen mother herself through proxies as well, taking over, you know, the businesses of the people. And, you know, if, if I would say that three quarters of the economy of the country is controlled by the king, and his, the royal family, you can tell that the economy is only get, going to get worse because they then become exempt from paying tax. And in a country that has no uh, viable tax base, you know, all you're going to do is tax on consumables, things that the people can pay directly. And of course, the people are overtaxed as it is in an economy that is not, you know, growing and in a situation where people's salaries are not growing and it's a situation where, you know, um, Whereas the commodities, the, the prices of commodities increases, people go further into poverty. And we're, we're looking at a situation where at some point again, we will see that kind of unrest that we had um, because even those in the middle class who are not affected right now by what is happening are going to be affected eventually and they will have to come into the struggle. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a scary picture. I have... Um, friends who have been squeezed out illogically by um, the methods you're describing, high taxes for very small businesses. And you know that the taxes are, are to fund um, the, the royalty and also to, um, to, to get those people out of those, those sectors. Um, so, Mary, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, particular, uh, it's not legislations, but I, I don't know, regulations or, or things that were said um, in the American Parliament or Senate and, and in the EU. What exactly are those and what are they pertaining to and what impact do they have? Um, okay, so basically what is... I'll talk about the commonalities between the two. Of course, they are condemning the violence against the people. They are condemning the human rights violations in the country. And they are calling on the government 
to do something about it. And the something about it that they are calling governments to do is seed to the calls for a national dialogue uh, through which, um, you know, people can then, you know, determine their own future, determine the cause of the uh, of the country. Um, and part of those resolutions talk to targeted in as much as it may not go into details of what the targeted sanctions would be. It's, it's, it's basically a carrot and stick kind of approach that says, if you do not do this, you know, there will be negative ramifications for the country and foreign exports of sugar and beef go to Europe. So in a situation where we're talking targeted sanctions, while we as the mass democratic movement are pushing for, you know, um, a banning of, of, of trade with the country, we are saying that, and I've mentioned that the king is the biggest business player in that uh, field, it will directly affect him. And this is what we mean by targeted, because this is now, excuse me, now an a sector where the king is the big, biggest businessman and he will definitely feel the pinch. Even within the U.S., you know, when, when, when we're dealing with countries at international level, there are bilateral or multilateral agreements that are signed between these countries. There are benefits that countries, you know, get from, from having trade agreements with each other or whatever agreement that they may have. So we're saying to the U.S., We've got Agoa, for example, where uh, Swaziland has preferential, um, you know, benefits of being part of the trade agreement. We Agoa was once suspended for Swaziland, and we saw how our government ran around trying to rectify that which um, the U.S. government had called for. So we're looking at targeted sanctions again that says, Perhaps this time we can say there are some individuals that are so undesirable, they cannot allowed to travel to the U.S. for business purposes or for diplomatic reasons or whatever. Um, trade agreements that are in place can be suspended, you know, until the country rectifies that which that they're being, you know, um, called to fix, again, which talks to the human rights violations relations that are currently happening. So um, this is something that the mass democratic movement has been talking about for a very long time as well. You know, um, you yourself know that within 20, in 2010, 2013, we were talking to targeted sanctions for the country that says san just a bl blanket sanctions won't do because they will affect the Swazi people who are already suffering. But when you target specific people and their businesses, then perhaps we can begin seeing a, a few changes by those very same people to rectify that which they have been called to 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 fix. Yeah, I hope I hope um, this finally starts to happen because. It's been too long now, and it, it makes sense. They've done it in other parts of the, the world. Um, and I think Mswati and his royal family and the government will feel the, peel, the, the pinch very quickly if that were to happen. Um, Mary, moving towards closure, as a woman in a very male-dominated, a very charged environment, like this, you know, the struggle for democratization of Swaziland, how are you feeling about the participation and representation of women? Is it at a good level? Are you happy with it? If not, um, how and why should more women get involved? I, I'm not happy with it. Um, and 
this is because, you know, we, we spoke about the patriarchal nature of the, of the country. We spoke about how culture is used. But within this, we always forget that even within the mass democratic movement or those spaces where we think our male comrades have been exposed or more educated, we forget the issue of socialization. That these male comrades were also socialized in a specific manner. And sometimes it, beca- it it's a subconscious thing that they do not realize they are doing as well until they are called out on it. I will make an example. When we go to meetings, it's 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 a small thing, but it it, it it's of significance. We go to meetings and tea has been laid out. You will find a male comrade um just casually asking a, a female comrade to pass to you know to give him the tea. And I've always asked, but why are you asking the f- female comrade instead of getting it yourself. And at the moment when I call him out, that's when he realizes that, oh, okay, I've just made a blunder. And that's just him in the way he was socialized because we are socialized. I mean, our habits and our values are formed when we're very young. And it is difficult for us to get out of them when we're old. And as much as we're trying to unlearn the bad habits, but we also have to learn new habits. And so I'm not happy with the women representation, because part of it is also that we as women are held back by our own socialization. And while we try to fight the barriers that are there, you know, that are put by men, we also have to fight the barriers that have been put in our subconscious. And and that is a huge battle that we have to face. While others talk to women empowerment and all these other things, I feel we are beyond women empowerment. We must now become and we now must now begin enabling women. Women are empowered enough, they know their rights and everything. We must now begin enabling them to stand firm and you know assert themselves. I have been called by men who don't want to understand what we're about. You know, you, you're called a bully when you assert yourself. When you say, No, I'm not going to make your tea, somebody will be just like, Ah, oh, but you're being a bully. And you can kind of try to find out what do you mean, bully. And then you, un- you, 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 you understand that they're trying to tell you you're being aggressive. Whereas all you're doing is standing your ground and affirming your rights to say, we are equal in this space. Do not make me perform a duty that you think I should perform because of the gender roles that have been assigned by society. So we need that kind of situation where we enable the woman to then say, within the mass democratic movement itself, no, comrades. I will not do this because you are now making it about who I am in terms of gender roles. For example, we have gender officers and so on and so forth in spaces. You find it's a woman and you ask yourself, but issues of gender are not about women only. There are other genders out there that we've got to look out for. Yeah, (laughs) interesting. Yeah. So, um, what is, I mean, how are you? But it becomes about women's rights, you know, we're women. How am I? Oh, sorry. Um, there was an overlap there. Um, how, how, I mean, how are we trying to get more women involved and um, the space in, in different levels, rural women, young women? What, what are we doing to ensure that this happens? So what, what we, we've been trying to do is push the issue of social inclusion. You know, um, we've moved our, away from gender inclusion to, to being so, so 
socially inclusive, which talks to not dogs or you have spaces that you have opened up or platforms that you have opened up. Be as inclusive as possible. Yeah. Don't just be inclusive, but also give them a sense of belonging in that space. Because we can get women into these platforms. We've got, we can get young people into these platforms, people with disabilities, uh, LGBTI community into these platforms. But if we do not enable them, you know, to belong to the space and enable them to use their own voices to speak in the spaces, then we haven't done anything. And what we've been doing for a very long, very long time is just including, just for the diversity aspect, but we are not, you know, we are actually just doing it to tick a box. But now, to the extent that sometimes they say we force people to speak, it's not about forcing people to speak. It's about saying, you have a voice. Use your voice. You don't have to use my voice to speak to your issues. You understand your issues better yourself because you have lived those experiences. So use your own voice. And then I will come in to support you and amplify your voice by adding my weight behind what you have said. So I think that that approach of inclusivity and belonging is very critical in our spaces. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mary, and thank you for making time because I've been trying to lock it down for this conversation for a while. You are all over the continent. You just happen to be in Pretoria right now. The other week, where were you in Banjul? Um, and the other week you were in Kenya. The other week you were elsewhere. Um, are you seeing the fruits of this um, institutional work that you're doing? What are you seeing? What are the tangible changes you're seeing in the AU, in the SADC, and the other um, institutions that you are engaging? Thanks, uh, thanks, Norman, and thank you so much for your patience with me. Um, you know, it's it's been very difficult over the last past uh, uh, past few months, particularly after the death of Tulani, because uh, Tulani thing in one country, I hold the fort back home. He comes back, I and I move, and sometimes we travel together. But now the workload is is a lot. But um, coming to your question to say. Are we seeing any fruits? I would say yes. The one thing that people don't understand, let's say the struggle itself, you know, is a long-term thing. It's not a short-term thing that I will call for democracy today and attain it in in maybe two years. It's for the long haul. I mean, look look at South Africa, you know, you've gone through phases in the struggle and we are doing the same thing. We have our own phases in the struggle in our country. But the one thing that, we are seeing is that these institutions are now talking about Swaziland. We were never on the table. We were never spoken about, regardless of how much we have, how much work we have put in, putting in statements and asking for resolutions. Swaziland was never a priority country. And that is the reality. You know, um, just last year, I was on an IVLP in the U.S., and we were told to our faces, but you guys are not a priority country, which is something that others have not been able to tell us, but we could see it. And we were glad for the honesty from, from, from the Americans to say we are insignificant. But now, you know, everybody is talking about Swaziland, regardless yeah. of where you are in the, in the world. And for us, that kind of, you know, uh, visibility of the Swazi struggle, that kind of, um, you know, the fact that there is something happening 
um, around the diplomatic tables on the issues of Swaziland. The fact that our government is backpedaling from all the bad publicity, for us, it is a validation of the work that we have been doing all these years. We may not see the outcomes in by the end of the year, but we're definitely going to be seeing something. Something is going to give, even if I say perhaps within the next five years. A lot of people may be despondent and say five years is a long time, but that's how long it takes for people to get to the dialogue table, you know, uh, you know in order to talk to, to the issues. Yeah, you're more practical and pragmatic than me, Mary. Like, I just don't understand why it's hard for a country like America to, they've got a huge embassy and a huge presence in the country. They fund a lot of things. Um, it would be so easy for them to squeeze them slightly towards a democratic um, regime. But yeah, that's just me. I am so grateful for you giving us your time and sharing and updating us what's happening in Swaziland. And I'm also very inspired by your courage. You are so courageous, Mary. I, I um I know how violent and how bad things got in that country. So uh, keep up the good work. We are with you in spirit always, my sister. Thank you. Thank you so much, so much, Ndombenzi. I think um, words of encouragement from comrades around the world keep us going. And I just want to give special appreciation to you as a sister, because I know you sought me out as a sister to give voice to other sisters in the country and, and uh, give recognition of the work that we're doing. Thank you so much, Ndomit. Thanks, Mary.